You're listening to the Wild Voices Project, and today I'm speaking with Dame Fiona Reynolds, Master of Emmanuel College, Cambridge, and former Director General of the National Trust. So I usually just start by asking um, what role nature, the outdoors, played in your childhood when you were growing up. A huge role. My parents are both absolutely in love with the countryside. I'm one of five girls, and our completely normal family activities were just all outdoors. So everything from you know going out for walks at the weekend and usually coming back completely filthy and you know very much a sort of un kind of sanitised nature experience to all our holidays being Snowdonia or the Lake District involved lots of walking up hills and pouring rain and um, I think one holiday we saw every single waterfall that was to be seen within a huge radius because it was it was just so wet but actually we just always had to be out and um, very kind of lively energetic um, great lovely childhood yeah with it um were there sort of particular spots within Snowdonia or within the Lake District that are special to you because you visited them? Oh, completely, yes. And, I mean, home was Warwickshire. Um, and I can remember my father taking us out to this um, Roman site, which was under the uh, junction of the M1 and the M6, as the M6 was being built. So this, is, this dates me, you know, this was in the late 60s when I was a child. And, you know, just Badby Woods I've written about as a a beautiful bit of woodland now, protected, but at the time just ancient woodland, but just, you know, there and a sort of joy to discover. And all the canals around us, you know, just accessible countryside, but but actually had its own wild character. Snowdonia, we always, for years and years, we stayed at a little um, house uh, on the beach, actually, just south of Harlech, but we weren't allowed on the beach. Uh, we had to go walking, and so the beach days <laughs> were usually the days when it was raining, and we were allowed to stay home and go on the beach for like half a day. But you know, collecting shells and swimming and, and everything else. But often when we came back from a big walk, so mostly actually the Harlech Dome, you know, the um, Reynolds behind Harlech. And I don't, I know Harlech, oh. I've been to Northwest Wales once, but oh, I don't it's know heaven. That. I mean, later on, my, my husband's family has a little cottage in Snowdonia proper, opposite right. Lamberis, where so my children have all had that, but just from a slightly further north. But uh, yeah, we just love Snowdonia particularly. And Lundy, we go as a family to Lundy every year, and we absolutely love Lundy because it's got that kind of remote, um, but really kind of charismatic atmosphere. And I assume, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of obvious in your writing that that's where your passion and your drive for the work that you've done throughout your career came from, from that yeah, childhood experience. Yeah, completely. And I mean, I just feel I was one of these incredibly fortunate people who discovered when I was at university that you could actually work in the field that you were passionate about. I mean, you're doing the same, aren't you? Well, I, I, I always say to people, I had this sort of moment when I was at university. I'd been interested in birds and wildlife since I was mm. about five years old. Mm. And then I had this moment partway through my, my arts degree when I was mm. like, Oh, you can actually do jobs in the environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and you're a lot younger. <laughs> that changes things. But, but, but my father was um, a research and engineer, you know, sort of metallurgist. And, and mm. I mean, he always occupied every second of his non-working life, filled with hobbies. You know, he was walking, he was played the piano, he was amateur archaeologist, he was, you know, everything. And I sort of thought that's how it had to be. You know, you did your job and then the rest of your life you devoted to your passion. And then I suddenly had the same... Think ah, you can work in conservation ah, 
And that's what I did. So lucky to get great jobs right from the start, but, you know, always doing things I felt completely passionate about. So I feel I've been very fortunate. And remind me where you started. Was that with Campaign for National Parks? Or yes. am I misremembering? Yes, yeah. it was. And, and at the time, it was the secretary to the Council for National Parks. Yes. And there was me and a part-time um, woman who became my best friend. You would, you would do. Um, and that was all we were, you know, in a tiny crickety office with a manual typewriter you know, and we used to have to Romeo off our briefs, you know, lobbying the House of Lords in the basement, you know, type them up and then roll them off and then stuff them in envelopes and get on our bicycles and cycle down to we hadn't got any money for postage or anything. We were we were absolutely doing it on, on air. But, you know, the Wildlife and Countryside Bill was in Parliament, it couldn't have been a more sort of febrile time and we were caught up in the whole, you know, Birth of Wildlife Link, the organisations really working together. In fact, I got to know people like Stuart Housden and Tim right. Sands, you know, who are great figures in the wildlife movement, you know, at that time. And we just, we were working together for days on end, all, sitting up all night, listening to, trying to stop ourselves falling asleep, ready for the moment, and someone might ask us, you know, for a qu- response to a question. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary time, couldn't have been, you know, in a way, a better time to sort of launch into the movement. Because it really had to grow up very, very fast, you know. Mm. Um, one of the most biggest, but also most controversial bills in front of beginning in the House of Lords and then went to the Commons. And the government was completely unprepared for the level of public interest and scrutiny. And the Lords, you know, had great fun because a lot of them, Aubrey Buxton, you know, great, again, great figures in the movement were really wanting Peter Melchick, you know, led the Wildlife Link um, cause, but people really wanting to use this as an opportunity to raise all kinds of issues which had been not taken seriously in the past and, and not really given the scrutiny they deserved. Mm. And um, <laughs> I, feel, I feel extremely privileged now what with, you know, when you describe sort of using typewriters and cycling to oh, take your briefings yeah, and stuff. Yeah. I, work in, I work in climate change policy now and <laughs> oh. I feel sort of very, uh, very sheltered and um, oh, kind of spoiled. Well, we, we literally had to do it all ourselves, you know. Yeah. Uh, we were working very closely with CPRE, we shared an office, uh, but literally, and we were just, we were in um, top end of Eaton Square, so you we were only a 10 minute cycle ride from the House of Commons, which was all, that's how we worked in those days, you know. But we really literally had to type every word of our briefs, you know, by hand and correct them on the, with this, I mean, it was just sort of, I can remember when the third, first word processor arrived in the office and we had to sign up to use it for in half-hour slots, you know. I mean, it was just... And the, 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 just the sheer kind of contrast now with the way technology is. You press a button to brief somebody, you know. But it was good stuff. We were, we were putting together beautiful, very well-crafted arguments, working really closely with all the wildlife bodies. You know, there was such a sense of purpose and commitment and, and almost enthusiasm. I mean, you just saw this as this great chance to get wildlife on the agenda mm. and the protection of the countryside, you know, hugely kind of, um, you know, an unprecedented opportunity, I think, for the movement. And, and so, I, was, I was there, you know, as a baby, really. I was just out of <laughs> university, first job, no, never done a job before, literally, you know, just couldn't have been more exciting. That's a little bit how I felt in the past few years, yeah. So what was it that you achieved and that changed during that period? Why was that period so critical to the movement and to the protection of landscapes and wildlife? 
Well, it was it, it, the Wild Thing Countryside bill, I mean, was fraught with tension because, of course, the, it was a Conservative bill and the Labour Party had had a bill which had been chucked out when the Labour Party fell in 79 and Thatch came in. You know, this is ancient history, but really important. Um, and the, the Labour bill had been going to be much more ambitious on nature and countryside protection. While the Countryside Bill came in, government said it wasn't going to have any legal safeguards for nature or for countryside. So what we've been lobbying for, because I come from the sort of landscape perspective more, was for national parks, was for things like moorland conservation orders to stop people being able, the farmers being able to plough up moorland. But two, two things happened. One is that the habitats, the very earliest sort of habitats protection was coming in from Europe and the government knew it had to enshrine some of the lists of species to be protected in this new bill and that was a massive hook and the other is that that we managed to get on the agenda for the first time that farming you know had to be addressed at source rather than a sort of end of pipe so mm. all the big problems in wildlife at the time not all but most of them were being caused by intensification of farming so moorland ploughing hedgerows removed removal woodlands being ploughed out wetlands being drained, Hovergate Marshes was 1981 as well. There were these big, big projects which were driven by agricultural intensification. And all the conservation efforts before that had been to try and, you know, stop, um, protect protect the land that was vulnerable. And it was during the passage of that bill, which I think was the big change of, of a sort of understanding was that people began to realise now you had to change agriculture policy, you had to stop agriculture policy being so aggressively production oriented. And so that campaign led very quickly on to the very successful campaign. The CPRE was in formidable kind of spirit at the time, led by Robin Robin Grove White. Um, you know, first time the movement really had lobbied in Europe we were running over to Brussels and trying to get the agricultural structures regulations changed. At that time, there were farm grants to pull out hedgerows and plough ponds. I mean, literally, farmers were being paid to damage wildlife. I mean, they it's still bonkers. do, but they still do, but indirectly. But this was, you know, you can get the grant of the high percentage of the capital cost of, I mean, it's 50% grants, you know, the cost of removing hedgerows and ploughing out uh, ponds and, and small woodlands and draining some wet, wetlands. And so we, you know, we got all that stopped, um, and that was a direct result of the wildlife and countryside bills arguments, and then gra- gradually started to press for things like ESAs, which were the first moment where farm uh, farmers who who were in areas that were a recognised to be exceptionally interesting, stroke beautiful um, places like the Yorkshire Dales, the hay meadows of the Yorkshire Dales, which had mm. all been rapidly destroyed, and B where you know it was recognised that. I mean, in fact, it's true everywhere, but these were, were the sort of public recognition, if you like, that these areas were dependent on a certain kind of farming to maintain their ecological and aesthetic um, and historic interest. Mm-hmm. So the areas that qualified for ESA status were, you know, areas of very sort of particular character, like the hay meadows of the Yorkshire Dales or West Penwith, you know, in the west of um, Cornwall, uh, areas of very, very conscious sort of, but very much cultural, um, aesthetic and ecological altogether. Very interesting set of arguments, but we just lobby, 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 you know, farmers were the enemy, agricultural policy was the enemy. It was fraught, fraught times, and we were hugely criticised for criticising the farmers, but 
people were just beginning to realise how completely destructive agricultural policy was. Mm. I wonder if um, what you're talking about there about the different kinds of the different kinds of landscapes and the different kinds mm. of farming and that sort of thing. I think for me, in reading in reading your book, mm. that was for me at the heart of how I think you understand what beauty means, yes, which is yes. about heterogeneity yeah. and kind of um, colloquial colloquialism within the landscape. Am I right? Is that fair? Yes. I mean, what I was... I worried endlessly about using the word beauty, actually, except that now I'm, I kind of have thought it through to the point where I'm completely unapologetic. But lots of people said to me, don't use the word beauty. You know, it's a superficial thing. It's a, in the eye of the beholder or it's just one dimension. And no, my point was absolutely, and I hope I made the case, you know, that it represents the sort of composite, you know, the uh, the way in which areas have distinctive characters and distinctive kind of qualities which emerge from usually very long historical patterns of, of land use or urban evolution or, or whatever mm. it is, not just confined to rural areas. And B, there's a kind of big human element. I mean, I mean absolutely, I'm a sort of Hoskins devotee, you know, that, that this is, we're not after pristine landscapes that are untouched by human hand because our landscapes are not like that and, and never will be. And of course, we, we need some areas where the hand of intervention is very much lighter than it is now but it's not about no intervention at all in my mm. view so I, I I use beauty as a way of sort of aggregating these different elements and also try very hard not to get caught by the idea that beauty is something that sort of the middle classes you know embrace when they're well off enough and have bought their nice house or whatever but that as I described through the history of Ruskin and Octavia Hill and everyone else it's a kind of deeply important human need for everyone regardless of, of circumstance and um, economic position, etc. Well, I think as you write, maybe in the book, or maybe it's in one of your articles, Octavia Hill and the others who were working mm-hmm. at that time, you know, sort of a century or more ahead of the science, yeah. identified yeah. something that is actually fundamental to human health and well-being. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was, you know, Octavia Hill's writings are so profoundly about, you know, human need and, you know, the way that how deprived... The way that our lives are impoverished by deprived de- deprivation of, of nature, and you know her taking the ragged school children out into Essex, you know on a on a Sunday when I mean it was a ten mile walk from the ragged school where she taught out to Epping Forest, but she wanted them to see, you know, blue skies and and flowers and smell nature and have bare feet and walk in the grass and the, and the ponds in a way that, you know, in central London at that time, they simply never saw a green blade of grass, you know, it was so filthy and their lives were so deprived. So yes, absolutely seeing this as a kind of fundamental human need. And of course, as you say, the sort of science and the technological understanding has evolved since then but in a way my book is about saying don't get so captivated by that that you forget the human need mm. because actually you know that when you reduce everything to sort of instrumental and technical arguments you know, someone can always trump you actually that's an unfortunate word to use now isn't it but <laughs> yes. maybe not maybe not but that's that was the problem that you know the, the sort of instrumental kind of characteristics of nature you know someone could always say well it's worth more to have the reservoir or to plow out the um, wetland site or whatever it was it was always kind of more valuable to do the destructive thing whereas if you argue it to me on almost moral grounds um, and these kind of deeper human needs um, you can actually make a case for protecting these places and these attributes I believe in, in a more effective way 
Mm. Well, I think in the book you make the case quite convincingly both for the fundamental importance to people of beauty and also of beauty being more than something superficial yeah. Yeah. through, in particular, the kind of cultural significance it built up in the decades prior to Octavia Hill's work mm. through artists and through poets like Wordsworth, yeah. for example. And I think um, my interpretation was that at that moment and again when, when you began your career that there were three kind of inter interacting or interfacing elements. There was the kind of cultural significance of beauty and landscapes to people. There was the kind of legislative or there were the legislative definitions, mm. but those on their own weren't enough. You know, you, you write about how national parks were designated, but even after they were designated there was yeah. still yeah. degradation of them. And then yeah. the third element being the kind of political will and the campaigning nows of um, organisations working to protect them and together that cultural mm. importance and that public kind of backing for them, the legislative elements and the political and campaigning element work together to make changes mm. at those crucial moments. I think that's right and, and I mean there are lots that I you know got a bit entranced by the sort of Ruskin period and then the kind of you know uh, immediately post Second World War period, but there are. To be honest, I, I started off thinking there were these two great moments, but actually, when you really look at it and study it and read, there's it's, it's much more complicated than that. But there was there was, there was a real sense, and I, I remember reading. I can't remember where I read it now, but somewhere that, you know, as the Industrial Revolution really took hold, was also the moment at which people really, really valued nature, and you know some of those early engravings like Buick and, and, and others, you know, were moments where people started to identify birds and really connect with nature in a in a much more profound way, partly out of contrast to the industrialization and the impoverish, impoverishment of their lives that was going on through mm. the harsh working conditions. So in a way I think and that's why I'm always obsessed with the cultural value of, of nature and landscape and, and history, as much as I am with the sort of scientific value because I think this is very much a, a, um, a movement that is about emotional and spiritual responses as well as about you know objective needs and that to me is where we've often got a bit carried away by the need to be objective and to make a sort of business case for nature if you like where actually it's it's a deeply spiritual sense of connection that you know wherever you look in history people have felt it um, and felt it in a very profound way. Um, how, you know, I, in, in my day job, I spend a lot of time sitting down with civil servants, mm. with mm. policy people in other NGOs, with ministers sometimes, if I'm lucky enough. Um, and uh, again, you refer to this, you know, if I were to try and bring up beauty as an mm. argument in those meetings, there'd probably be, you know, a couple of weird looks and, you know, I'd feel a bit red-faced. How do you think we bring beauty back into consultation responses, back into lobbying conversations with, with civil servants in a way that, you know, in a way that um, doesn't result in the, in the lobbyist just looking a bit red-faced? Well, I, I think this is a really interesting challenge and a really vital one because, in a way, if I look back over the years, many years of campaigning, every now and again you win an argument by sheer hard work and loads of evidence submitted and loads of good meetings with civil servants and ministers and you know getting the parliamentary questions tabled and all the sort of classic things every now and again that works and it's great stuff and lobbyists become extremely good at it in fact I became almost one of the most 
I think, you know, policy wonkish, policy wonks there ever was at a certain point <laughs> in my career. You know, yeah. I was bloody good at it. And so was everyone around me. You know, we were all really, really good. But actually, when you look back and think, where were the breakthrough moments? Where were the kind of big shifts that came about? The things that really matter? It was when you talked at a totally different level and when it was demonstrated that the public was behind us in a mm. very um, almost intuitively, powerfully um, often unashamedly emotional way. So, you know, winning the argument about the forests, for example, or the NPPF was not... You mean not, the sort of 2011 Yeah, Yeah, those, those recent ones was, was entirely, um, you know, at the end of the day, just a sort of huge public reaction which, which swung. It wasn't, it wasn't the technical, nerdy, sort of clever, but actually rather soulless arguments... And looking further back, you know, getting national parks out of the doldrums, you know, of course, all those submissions and the Edwards Review and everything else. But actually, it was when the government realised just how important, you know, people um, found national parks, you know, that the, the, the evidence of the um, people visiting them and the, the, the sort of spiritual uplift that people felt, you know. So I think there's lots and lots of arguments in my life where we've done all that stuff and and yes it might have felt red-facing or whatever to to use the word beauty but actually actually it worked better to be unashamedly um you know lifting the the argument out of the technocratic and into into a kind of more into values um, yeah into values into morals into you know, this is the right thing to do, and this is why it's the right thing to do. But 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 you know, so so there are, there are, there's always a combination of forces going on when you get a policy shift. Mm. Always, um, but as I say, if, if I'm if I'm really honest, over those thirty five years or whatever that I've been working, I I think you know we we thought we were so clever, but actually the things that were breakthroughs were were very often the things that caught the public imagination, or or a minister who just in their heart says, yeah, you know, I love native broadleaf trees and I'm I'm fed up that the Forestry Commission just doesn't give them enough attention you know those moments or when Lawson pulled um, you know commercial forestry out of the hugely uh, advantageous tax advantages mm. in 80 was it 87 or something I can't remember the date now it's in my book it's terrible how you yeah, I've it got that bit I haven't just I can't yeah. remember it no no but you know yeah. it was, it, we, and, and it was just he, Lawson just looked at it and said it's immoral that you know all these incredibly rich people who don't actually really care about trees it's just a tax device you know we're wrecking the flow country in Scotland and it's got to stop you know so as I say there are there are so of course you have to make the arguments but I want people to talk about beauty I want people to talk in more charismatic and emotional terms and I think it will at the end of the day I think it will have uh, more effect um, I think you draw out another interesting observation or theme, which is the the sort of 1930s split between the wildlife movement mm. and the landscape movement. Mm. Maybe it's slightly earlier than that even. Um, and then the kind of dovetailing back together where yeah. they realise that actually they work more more effectively if mm. they're arguing for the same things together, particularly through wildlife and countryside link that you write about. Um, and I was actually really interested, you picked up on fracking as a yes. kind of modern day case study and that's one of the policy areas that I've actually been quite oh, involved yeah. in yeah. Um, because we had sort of flip-flopping from the government on yes we're going to rule out designated areas mm. no we aren't yes we are no we aren't mm. and um, RSPB was um, 
who I work for were, was kind of at the heart of an alliance of NGOs that included National Trust, CPRE yeah. and the Wildlife Trusts. Yeah. And eventually after lots of that lobbying that, mm. you know, you have to do, um, we convinced government that the right thing to do was to rule out fracking at the surface, at least, mm. although not below the surface, mm. um, within AOMBs, within yeah. national parks, yeah. and finally, with, with the one that they were flip-flopping over the most, within SSIs. Really? So you got that, have you? Good. We did yeah. get that in the Great. end, yeah. It, so they they yeah, reversed yeah, yeah. their position about three or well, four I times. Well, I know. I never know whether, whether I'm up to speed <laughs> with it all, because of course I, um, that's my big problem now, is I don't have the kind of endless sources of, of, of information coming through. Yeah. But, but no, I mean, I, I, and actually, don't get me wrong, I mean, those kind of alliances are really, have been really important. I mm. mean, what the Green Alliance is now doing on the you know, Brexit is a similar thing. We've got to work together. I mean, and Peter, you know, Peter Meltrick was, was unbelievably brilliant. I mean, he's a young Labour peer who, um, in, when the Wildlife and Countryside Bill was about to be introduced, just said, look, this could be a disaster unless we all really coordinate what we're doing and don't... Um, kind of get carried away by the subtle differences that you know the people campaigning for national parks or the people campaigning for SSSIs or whatever might mm. might have we've just you know so he was very good at kind of knocking heads together and saying just stop it stop stop arguing let's get on with the bigger picture and that is interesting because up to that point and I think that you know the split as you say happened really around the end of the first world war actually where the nature conservationists were, were pretty clear that they would do better going their own way and they did do better undoubtedly you know the wildlife protection in the 49 Act was much stronger although it still took a heck of a long time to get there um and the you know the national parks and the access movements were always much more controversial because they touched you know the heart of landowners rights in a in a much more what felt a much more challenging way Mm. um so i mean they split for for really those reasons but it took a long time to get back together again and i think that uh, you know some time was wasted as a result. I think the the, the fracking example though is a, mm. is an interesting case in point, and it's it's the probably the one notable area where in my career to date I've been working in climate change policy mm. for sort of I don't know three three and a half years maybe four years, um, and it's the one kind of notable big policy victory that I've yes. seen as an outcome yeah. of my work. It's not a massive victory, but it's an important policy change, um, and I think what we saw there was that. Um, triple SIs are obviously hugely important for wildlife, but in terms of capturing the public imagination mm. and media attention mm. in particular, national parks and AOMBs did a lot of the heavy lifting yeah. because people get them as a Yes, concept. and I think they also, that if you think about the fears about fracking, I mean, nobody knows very much about it and no one probably has seen anywhere fracked, although sadly mm. they will before long. Mm. Um, but, you know, the sort of fear of fracking is that it will disrupt... A place you love and so they can sort of in a way that that the arguments that are about you know impact on the landscape and and, and those things you know it's a bit like adverse development pressures you know are things people people have seen and can get their head around whereas the impact on an SSSI is probably harder to conceptualize even though maybe just as significant mm. so I think some of it is about where people are in terms of their expectations but I mean as you know the other fracking fundamental point is is the carbon one and it just seems absolutely crazy that we're looking for a new carbon source at this point when we have to leave so much of what we've already got in the ground exactly yeah yeah yeah. Uh, it is a little bit bonkers from that point of view as Mm. well um 
looking ahead a little bit, mm. um, uh, what what do you think is the future for designated sites and also for the farmed environment in the UK? Uh, if and when and depending on how we leave the European Union <laughs> well, I don't what know. do you think it should be? <laughs> I was going to say, who, who knows <laughs> we're, we're, it's an extraordinary situation where none of us have a clue what the government's thinking and, um, I'm not sure the government has a clue but we'll find out, no doubt well look, I mean, I have two very strong messages really um, one is in my book, the other one isn't because Brexit hadn't happened, thank goodness otherwise I might have had to write a different book <laughs> well not a different one, but you know, it would have been much more kind of difficult to just end on this um, optimistic note that I do. Um, I mean, the one that's in my book is that I I really believe we should be more confident in in sort of moving beyond designations in the sense that, you know, the the success of designations are in how we've learned to manage these areas of the countryside, whether they're national parks or nature protection sites, to the point where we, you know, we haven't excluded all you know ability for people to live there and work there and do sensible things there mm-hmm. and actually you know the whole of the uplands really should be managed like our national parks and we need nature to break out of its site protection mentality and we've got to think big for nature and we aren't thinking nearly big enough and so we need to so it doesn't necessarily mean you will never have any boundaries but but actually we should take the lessons we've learned about how to manage these areas well and successfully and extend them so you know the boundary thing becomes less of a an issue about you know how can we tightly control everything within a small area and much more about let's expand you know what we've learned to do in a, in a really intelligent way um but i think the, the the farming thing i mean i feel very very strongly and i'm I kind of, in a way, it's the first time I felt really frustrated not having an organisation, you know, because I'm here on my own now and I, I have no levers to pull or whatever. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Whereas always I've had a, an avenue of, you know, I mean, obviously I'm chair of the Green Alliance, but that's a slightly different thing because it's not, a, it, it's, it's, it's coordinating and it's creating the conditions for everyone to, to mm. thrive. But I do believe passionately, and I may, may differ from some people in this respect. Um, in the fact that we are a farmed landscape and, you know, very, very high percentage of our existing farmland, in my view, should and will continue to be farmed. But, of course, you know, to farm in a way that properly respects nature and landscape and the cultural heritage, we need to farm very differently and we need the, the subsidy system is the big driver of negative change and could be so much better for nature and public benefit um, and I, you know, I think there are some obvious ways in which we could design um, agricultural policy better. And the biggest one is, is you know, again, moving away from its slightly sort of siloed nature and properly integrating it within a you know, land use strategy and not, not, at the moment, farming and woodland and forestry are sort of completely separate uh, processes. Mm. But farming doesn't do anything sensible around flood protection or anything else you know that's run by a totally separate so we've got ludicrous situations where one bit of public money is paying for a certain kind of land management which then another bit of public money has to pay someone else to unpick you know particularly on the flooding and and, and water management whereas if we had proper land use strategy approach you know we could but better protect the core resource the soil which is unbelievably important and the neglected feature of farm policy for the last 50 years 
and better integrate outcomes you know from um both in terms of you know yes there's going to be productive farming but also get get right soil water um integration with farming you know forestry and, and woodland management uh, benefits for people from nature you know protection of important historic cultural landscapes you know we, we could do it in a properly integrated way and we must do it in a properly integrated way so that's my sort of but I, I worry a bit I worry a bit that the sort of um, camps are settling into a farming camp and a wildlife camp Mm, okay. And actually, what we need to be is all you mean of us within the environmental within, sector? No, just within that. Oh, just within society. Within society. Mm. So there are people who say no. Farming's got to be much more productive, much more uh, aggressively um, ambitious. You know, in terms of food from our own resources. You know, those nineteen seventies arguments again. And you know, some parts of the nature lobby who come across as saying no, no, it all should be all about wildlife. And of course, it can't all be about wildlife. It's got to be about how to farm in a way that is masses better for wildlife than the current system, mm. but is still producing, you know, sustainable food and, and sustainable crops, you know, for our consumption. So that I, I worry if we end up with a sort of camp and then the government will kind of arbitrate and what will come out will be, you know, not very good. Whereas if we were all in the same boat and saying, look, this is a farm landscape, how can we optimize outcomes? You know, we might we might get further. Mm. So that's my sort of current pitch. I think you've I think you've also answered a question I was going to ask, which mm. was um, how how do how do designations function in a future in the UK that's affected mm. by climate change, mm. which is I think big. as you say, which is big, big. and moving beyond designations yeah. because yeah. Yeah. the designations themselves are fixed in one place. Whereas yeah. if the management is much more widely across the wider countryside, then species are much better able to adapt. Yes, and you know we even in when we're at our most sort of clever in managing for wildlife and managing for landscape and all the rest of it, it's not about holding things still. You know, we these are very mm. dynamic systems yeah. and, and we want things to get better and to improve. Um, but actually you need you need space, you know, that it it might get, you know, you might you might decide that one of the arguments is to have much more woodland along rivers and, you know, use that trees as part of your flood management and, you know, let trees fall into the water and all of those things, um, which will make the whole way that uh, wildlife corridors currently work completely different and, and unpredictably so in some ways. But you've got to, we've got to let that evolution happen, um, and you know not try and hold everything where it is or where it was in nineteen forty nine, mm-hmm. which has slightly been the issue. So I'm I'm more confident than perhaps when I was younger about letting evolution happen you know being being more comfortable with change so long as change is driven by good principles um you know we can't we can't pin the future into a particular model that in 2017 we think is right because mm. then, you know we do evolve but but we should, as long as our ambitions are to get things better and to you know do a better job i think we should we should be less anxious about being utterly prescriptive which was the sort of route we went down 30 years ago but that's but that terrifies people because they think <gasps> if we're not prescriptive things get lost and you never find them again and you know it's it, it is a difficult it's an easier argument to make but it's a difficult one to fulfill um i did want to ask as well now that you're beyond having an organization yeah. to use what are there links between your work here in uh, emmanuel college and 
these issues that you're passionate about or are you working on completely separate things? No, I'm not. I mean, I, I, I'm the sort of person who, you know, I am who I am, sort of wherever I am and whatever <laughs> I'm doing. And so, actually, uh, we've been doing some really nice um, conservation work here. Um, mostly, actually, uh, the thing that I've really particularly loved doing is the architectural conservation because what I've done is I've done a sort of classic national trust, um, you know, commissioned a, a historic analysis of the buildings and the way the college has evolved and, and, and written a conservation plan which no other college has done so that's and, and within that of course um, you know there is there are elements of you know the gardens the trees the, the open spaces you know and all the rest of it um, but it's 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 very much a sort of trying to apply my passion and belief and to you know do green refurbishment of um, to the you know sustainable energy and and mm. this whenever we make changes and so all of that so that that yes it is that the people know that's where I'm what motivates me and what interests me I mean I wouldn't say it's a sort of big nature strategy but on an eight acre site in the middle of Cambridge there's not a, it's not you know there's a, there's a limit to what you can do <laughs> but we, we we'll be planting you know like a little orchard in the gardens and you know doing we're doing things we've got bees you know we've got lots of nice things going on but I wouldn't want to overclaim for it but yeah yeah I certainly do apply what I believe in whatever I do yeah I suppose that leads me on to one of my other questions which is um where and how do you find space and time for beauty in your life oh easy answer to that question i'm a completely obsessive walker so i don't know if you ever follow me on twitter or anything like that but all i do is take pictures of i go i, I mean i unfortunately this time of year my time for walking it's always dark but it's amazing what you still pick up so now i just i just i walk i walk um five miles a day uh, the very early morning and I do it all year round. So, and then I walk at weekends, and I walk wherever I am. So, you know, at home in Gloucestershire, I had the most. We went up Panavan over Christmas, and you know, just I always grab opportunities for sort of serious walks wherever I can. This is not very serious walking country, unfortunately. No, <laughs> which is one of its only disadvantages because otherwise I love it. Um, so yeah, and then I take pictures and I post pictures of things I find beautiful. So yes, I haven't got my phone here, but I mean gloomy gloomy Sunday morning but there was a little white egret on the mill pond oh, uh, nice. near Newnham and so I just take pictures of things like that I look for the kingfishers in the botanic garden you know I can't always can't photograph them because they're too fast for me but you know I, I go to I go to uh, Byron's Pool Nature Reserve every weekend I walk up the cam a long way I you know walk into the countryside I just that's what I do that's how I top up my beauty um, and then I go in the train to London and every now and again I look up and think it's beautiful you know some building or some you know interesting things so I do, I just very attuned to looking for beauty and then tweeting about it so mm-hmm. I don't tweet about anything controversial I just tweet about beauty no so, I do follow you on Twitter and I think yeah. I've seen a couple of your photos from yeah. your from your walks yeah. yeah yeah I think that's that's similar to what I do really I'm I'm very into my birds so mm. there's some bird watching thrown in there yes well I'm not an expert on birds although I'm I did I was up at Penavan and um we were sitting having our lunch and we just this kite this enormous kite just flew below us and obviously in Wales it's probably a native kite you know because I mean I see them all the time now mm. between here and home yeah because I mean the children's is just kind of stack full of kites isn't it but seeing one in the Brecon Beacon 
all on its own was just amazing. Mm. So yeah, but I'm not I'm not a birder in a way that you probably. Are. What's your favourite bird? What do you? My like? favourite bird. My favourite bird is the peregrine falcon. Well, right. Being the word, world's fastest animal. Is it now? The and I've had a I've had a rather special relationship with peregrine falcons. Have you? As well, well yeah. my last day on Lundy this Easter, I got up at dawn and walked up. Do you know Lundy at all? No, I don't know. Oh, you should go to Lundy. And I walked up the east coast as the sun was rising. And there was a peregrine sitting right on the edge of the cliff, very close to me, because I was very quiet. And it was just this sort of, you know, this dawn moment. And I mean, it was just fantastic. You can see them at quite close quarters. Yeah. So it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, they're incredible birds. Well, my first ever RSPB volunteering was on a... They used to call them dates with nature. Oh yeah. Um, they were sort of you know come and see some wildlife in your city projects, and it was. Uh, and where was that? It was in Worcester. Where oh, I grew up. is that where so, you grew up? Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up in Malvern, so Worcester was not too far away. Mm. Um, Malvern's a decent walking country, actually. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, um, that's not far from home. Yeah. Yeah, um, and there was this pair of peregrine falcons in the. Um, on the cathedral, don't tell me. Uh, well, they nested on a tower near to the cathedral, but they did go and perch on the cathedral mm. sometimes. But I was very lucky they fitted a nest cam on the second year of the project and I was lucky enough to be there at sort of quarter past six one morning when the first egg hatched <gasps> and we saw it on the, on the oh nest cam. Oh my which was goodness, well, I can imagine so, falling in love with them there. Yeah, so yeah. I've kind of got a lifelong attachment to them. Yeah, um, Yeah, but there's, you know, I combine, I try and combine that with just walking and, um, you know, slowly taking in my surroundings rather than going out and hunting to see particular birds. So you're you know not I mean? you're not a sort of um, what's the word for it? Um, you know, a real bird spotter. What do you oh, call a twitcher. Them? Twitcher. You're not a twitcher. Oh well, though no, I am bit, guilty of that at bit, times. Yes. Okay. On Sunday, I was. Uh, sort of, I spent two hours staring into some scrub looking for a palace's warbler. Um, so there is some twitching that goes where were you, on. Where were you for that? That's <laughs> back home in Suffolk. Oh my god. Um, no, I try and fit in some walking to just try and enjoy the surroundings, and we've just got a. Um, uh, we've just got a Springer Collie cross puppy. Oh my goodness, so I've, got she... a, I've got a Spaniel Collie uh, cross dog. Ah, yeah, really? Yeah, they're mad. They're mad. <laughs> I warn you, they are mad. Yes, we've discovered. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But that's encouraging more sort of just general walking in the countryside, yeah. which is well, nice. Well, they're very energetic as well. They need, <laughs> yeah. they need lots of walking. They oh, lovely. Do. How old is the puppy? Uh, she's 13 weeks. Oh my goodness, so she's really little. Yeah, she had her first training class. How big, how big will she grow? Sort of that size, uh, maybe smaller. Actually, her sister from the previous litter is sort of about yay high top okay. of her head, so yeah, yeah, not yeah. not too massive. Yeah, yeah, very a good. very welcome addition. But mind you, they do they do scare the birds away. That's the only downside. You know, you yes. can't creep up on things when you've got a great bounding lolloping. <laughs> My girlfriend sort of said, "Do you want to take her with you on the twitch?" I said, I'm not sure the other twitchers will appreciate no, that. No, certainly won't. <laughs> no, no, I have to be really careful. I do take them when, I, when, when I'm at home, obviously, all the time, but I do sometimes think, as I see the deer bounding away, sort of like, I would have got much closer to them without the dog here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask mm. whether, um, during your career, there's a particular place um, that you've been involved in protecting or saving that's got some special significance to you or is it particularly fond memory in any way and oh, there's lots there's lots I mean I think 
I'm I'm a great believer in what I call the spirit of place. You know, this that, that places speak to you and they have immense character and immense kind of resonance. And the more you do in a place or for a place or get involved in protection or anything else, that that becomes you know more and more of a powerful emotion and you you fall in love with these places. And so I have um, when I, when you say that, I just immediately. Uh, you know, dozens of places jump into my head. There's nowhere I would say. I mean, very often it's the the place where big campaigns were were played out. Mm. So you know, from my early days, it'd be Exmoor or you know Snowdonia, which I've always loved. I mean, some of them are places where I've got a personal association. Or Holvergate Marshes. You know, there's great, amazing marshes in the east of England, which you know used to be such a common feature, and now you know such little scraps are left. So I feel very passionately about those places, but. Actually, when it comes to the National Trust, I mean, it was places where I had more... So, you know, Sutton House in Hackney, which was um, this rather sort of sadly neglected Tudor house, which we managed to get transformed into a community centre. I'm so proud of that. Every time I think about it, I think, oh, I love that place. And I did go back and, you know, it has such strong memories. So I think a lot of it is the places where you've had some kind of association or involvement um, and made something or were part of making something happen or part of the movement to, you know, do something incredible or, you know, so not, very, very much not me doing all the, all the work. I mean, it's very, I'm always a collaboration and very often I was the least important person, but I still felt, you know, very involved and very passionately committed. So, or the Lake District, you know, my gosh, I love places like that. I love hills. I was born in Alston, so I think I've got the hills in my DNA. Hmm. Which is why I find Cambridge the only disappointment in Cambridge. <laughs> Slight lack of hills, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you say a little bit more, maybe, about your time at the head of the National Trust and what that was like? And from reading, I think it was a Telegraph article about mm. um, about kind of work in your life. Um, you know, it, it just struck me how incredibly busy you were. Yeah. I mean, it was a big, big job. I mean, it's an enormous organisation. I mean, four million members by the time I left. I mean, the RSP, everyone says RSPB is this huge <laughs> membership charge. Well, the National Trust can <laughs> outclass it. And, and also many, many more properties than, you know, than the RSPB as well in terms of, and, and huge diversity, um, you know, from the built properties right through to extraordinary, you know, open countryside and coastline, masses and masses of coastline, you know, the extraordinary success of the coastline campaign um but you know the bit my big thing was was that when I went there and I was young and really inexperienced if I'm honest was that they they were both expecting and wanted and needed big organizational change you know there was a sort of frustration that the trust had become it was still very quite autocratic quite bossy quite formal quite you know, look down on visitors and people as sort of necessary evil, really. Um, and, you know, lots of do not signs everywhere and lots of kind of, this is how it's got to be, we know best, you know, very, mm. not not in a horrible way, but just born of years and years and years of genuinely believing they did know best. And I knew that there had to be change, but I hadn't any experience on how to do it. And so I... To some extent, I was sort of launched off because an organisational review had embark- been embarked on. And it was a really painful process. We moved people out of London to Swindon, so I uprooted a lot of people. We did a big organisational change, and some people didn't want to make the change and lost their jobs, and some people didn't want to move and lost their jobs. And, you know, it was really, really difficult. And so in many ways, when I look back on the trust, I think 
an enormous amount of my effort and you know personal kind of um, focus had to be on quite organizational things um, and the first five years were pretty hard I mean I had lots of criticism the move to Swindon was really you know sort of tyranny in the press particularly private eye you know right. every, almost every week there was some awful article about something I'd said you know because people were so grumpy about it and you know big governance changes financial overhaul oh it was really painful and then after the, after about five years it suddenly all started to work you know I had this big passion for arms open conservation which was about involving people and, mm. doing, and actually I say love people as much as places you know, and don't just tell people what to do and boss them about, but involve them and give them a chance to see the conservation work that goes on and to feel part of it and to feel that their support is really valued, not just in a sort of thank you for your money and we'll go away and spend it really cleverly, but a real sense of kind of involvement and collective endeavour. And then it all started to all started to work. So the second sort of six, seven years were much more fun and much more exhilarating actually and lots of exciting things happening. Um but also, it just was a big management job, you know. So I worked my socks off, you know. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard. I had three small children. I was mad, really. I look back on it and think, I never stopped, literally never stopped working. And so it was incredible. I don't think there'll ever be a job like it for me in my life. I loved it so much. I really, really loved it. Um, and I loved the people. I loved the... I love the volunteers, the staff, the, the the visitors. It just felt like there was this incredible kind of enthusiasm and, and passion for, for the cause. Um, so I did, I imposed some tough things on people, I know, but I think it was the right thing to do. But gosh, it was it was hard. Um, but then, you know, out of it came great, great success and great um, achievement. And, and that's continuing. I mean, what's lovely is seeing that, you know, those values are still at the heart of the trust today, mm. and they're doing brilliant stuff on nature and the wider countryside. So it's fantastic to see that. Um, and we mentioned before we started recording about the She Is Sustainable initiative around yes. women in conservation. Yeah. And yeah, um, you know, do you feel that? Well, I'm basically asking, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel that things have changed since you started in the sector? Do you feel things have improved? Well, or? they have changed and they have improved, but boy, they haven't changed enough. Right. I mean, the thing that sort of shocks me in a way is that when I was 21, 22 and, and you know, embarking, if I would have thought that when my daughters, because I didn't know I was going to have daughters for 21, 22, that things would not be radically different, I would have been shocked. You know, I, I thought I was, I sort of was a pioneer in some ways. You know, I did all my jobs quite young and quite, you know, I was in positions of management leadership from a young age. And I always thought, oh, but, you know, we're breaking down all these barriers and for the next generation it'll be so much easier. And then it isn't, frankly, so much easier. And my children are in their early 20s now. And, um, you know, I look at them and I think, you know, I I would have expected it to be much further on. And and the women who come to the Shears Sustainable events are amazing. I mean, they are wonderful. They're clever, they're motivated, they're smart, they're just brilliant. And they're saying, how on earth am I going to do it? How am I going to... If I want children, if I want, you know, to, you know, find balance in my life or to do other things, how on earth do you do it? And, And I don't think it is that much easier. Of course, they've got better rights at one level better you know culture of society has changed but it's not changed as much as I thought it would mm. um 
a lot of the people listening to this, if there are mm. lots of people mm. listening to this, which I hope there will be, um, will be sort of my contemporaries mm. and young people from a focus on nature mm. involved mm. in that network. Um, what what would you say to them? What advice might you oh, have for them? Well, I mean, it won't surprise you to hear that you know, being part of a college today, I, I, I am, A, completely passionate about young people. I mean, I'm surrounded by all these clever young people here who are... And, and B, I absolutely believe that they are going to solve the problems of the world and they have to you know my my children sometimes say to me blimey you know you lot left us with some really difficult problems and I say well I did my best you know but actually I'm optimistic I, I think there is a generation of young people growing up today who are deeply committed you know really have incredible skills and I think you know will work collaboratively in, 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 you know, in ways that I think will help us find answers to these really big problems. But I don't think it's, it's going to be easy, but I, I sense, you know, there are more kids who are applying, even to the conventional employers, you know, whether it's banks or going into accountancy, who are finding out what the sustainability record or the record on diversity is of, of the companies they want to work for and, and saying, no, I'm not going to work for something I, I don't think is, has the right values and the right... Mm aspirations I think there's a much more challenging um, and demanding culture and I also think that you know young people today are more resourceful actually you know they don't come out of university with a pretty much guarantee of a job anymore which you know was more the case when I left not saying it was absolute guarantee but I'd say it's so much more tougher people have to be more resourceful more flexible more adaptable and I think they are brilliant so I think you know, the world needs young people with those attributes, and I'm sure that they will do great things. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say or to add that I haven't asked about? <laughs> I think I've babbled on for long enough, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's just, uh, I, I feel very grateful for the opportunities that I've had, um, and we haven't fixed it. You know, we haven't fixed it by mm. any means. And in a way, we face bigger challenges. I don't remember a political period like this before. But on the other hand, I think that has to sort of strengthen our resolve to be creative, um, to break out of past solutions and find new mm. ones, and to work together. And I really think that sort of issue about working together is crucial, which is why Green Alliance, you know, which I'm so proud to be chair of, and its role in coordinating the Greener UK work is, is so critical. Yeah, I really think it does fantastic work. Yeah. It's very important. Okay. Great, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Thanks, that was really good. Thank you. Good. Wow. Stop all these various things. <laughs> these contraptions. Yes. <laughs>